Let's pray uh, as we prepare to open the Word of God together. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son Jesus who came and said to us, declared to us that when we are weary, that in him we can find rest. And Lord, many of us are weary. We're weary of the pandemic. We are weary of perhaps personal struggles that we are having, financial struggles, uh, struggles of loneliness, all sorts of things going on. But Lord, we focus on you, Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. In you, we find rest for our souls. And Lord, as we open your word, we recognize that the Spirit still speaks, still works potently and powerfully through the word that you have inspired and revealed to us. And I pray, Lord, that it would be a lamp to our feet this morning, that it would be like sunshine illuminating into our souls, uh, perhaps revealing things that you are dealing with in us, uh, warming us, all of the things that light does, bringing life. Lord God, may this be a time of life-giving uh, strength for your people. As we open your word together, study it, look at it, hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps one of the most uh, remarkable statements that there is uh, that describes God's comprehensive freedom is found in the first chapter of Ephesians and verse 11 where we are told that God, many of us know this verse off by heart, God works all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. One more time, God works, how many things? All things, according to the counsel of his will. Well, talk about a sweeping statement there. So at this very moment then, God is working everything in all of reality, no matter what it is, he's working it according to the counsel of his will. There is no thing, no government, no decision, no natural occurrence, no person, uh, no molecule, no attitude, no pandemic, no conversation, no anything that escapes the working of the divine will. The New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce, as he was commenting on this very verse of Ephesians, uh, made the following statement, and this relates specifically to human activity. Bruce said, God's will may be disobeyed, but his ultimate purpose cannot be frustrated, for he overrules the disobedience of his creatures in such a way that subserves his purposes. One more time, God's will may be disobeyed, but his ultimate purpose cannot be frustrated, for he overrules the disobedience of his creatures in such a way that subserves his purposes. Now, what our friend Jonah does not realize yet is that even as he makes his disobedient moves, we've seen him already doing that, God is already several moves ahead of Jonah. God continues to work God's divine will 
overruling Jonah's schemes. Jonah, as a frail human creature, is really not in any position to frustrate the will of God. And neither are we, friends. Neither are we. Well, let's see how this divine sovereignty unfolds as we continue into the next section of the book. We remember from last Sunday, if you were with us, that Jonah has been roused from his sleep now. Uh, And the storm at sea continues to rage away. The little ship is being heaved, it's being tossed back and forth in these very fearful conditions. And as that happens, now the frightened sailors, the mariners, they come together and they say to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Now, casting lots was actually a a common way in several ancient cultures, a common way to seek guidance, divine guidance, and to make decisions. In Israel, for example, the scapegoat was chosen by casting lots, and temple duties were also assigned through the casting of lots, as is reflected in 1 Chronicles 24. And the allotment of territory to the tribes in the book of Joshua was also done by casting lots. Lots were little stones that had both dark and light faces on them. The stones would be cast, and the specific combination of dark and light that showed up on the stones would give you your answer. Either a positive answer, a negative answer, or no answer at all. But the thing we need to grasp here as these mariners cast out these lots, the thing we need to bear in mind is the truth that is found in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, which says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord, from Yahweh. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Yes, we need to understand that God is sovereign here in our story of Jonah. God is working even this casting of the lots by the mariners according to his divine will in keeping with Ephesians 1.11. The end of verse 7 tells us that they cast the lots, and guess where the lot fell? The lot fell on Jonah. So get the picture The wind is howling still, the waves are pounding, the ship is threatening to break apart, as we read earlier, and now all eyes turn to Jonah. Verse 8, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. So now their boat is flooding with water, and now what they do is they flood Jonah with a series of rapid-fire questions. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? Just bang, 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 these rapid-fire questions. They want to know who this guy is, who the lot fell to, but more pertinently, pertinently, Because they are ancient people, 
who believed that the gods were territorial because they believed that certain gods controlled certain geographical jurisdictions. They want to know what jurisdiction, what territory Jonah came from so that they could approach whatever god, whoever god the Jonah worshipped, and possibly end the storm. Again, the captain, we remember, the captain had commanded Jonah himself to pray to his God for help in the storm, we remember that, but Jonah had not done that. Verse 9, Jonah replies now to the rapid-fire questions of the mariners. He says to them, the first thing out of his mouth, I am a Hebrew. So, that gives them an idea of Jonah's people group and where he is from. And then Jonah says this. Listen to what he says. I fear the Lord. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Yeah. Jonah fears Yahweh so much that Jonah has embarked on this very voyage to disobey Yahweh. Jonah fears Yahweh so much that knowing that Yahweh made the sea, as he says here, knowing that, Jonah dared to ride the sea in, a, in an effort to go away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah's claim here that he fears Yahweh, it rings a little hollow, doesn't it? But for their part, the mariners, they're listening to Jonah here. They hear, in what Jonah says, they hear Jonah connecting now, connecting God, Yahweh, to the sea. They're making that connection. And right now, the sea is continuing to punch their boat around. So now there's a frightening realization that is dawning on these sailors as they listen to Jonah that there's a real connection they perceive between Jonah, his God, and the raging sea. And more than likely here, if we look at verses 9 and 10, almost certainly, Jonah said more to these sailors than we have recorded in verse 9. And I make that argument because of what we have in verse 10. Verse 10 reads as follows. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. They had been afraid before. Now they are exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? And then notice what it says. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because Jonah had told them. When had Jonah told these mariners that he had been in flight from Yahweh? Well, he told them somewhere in between verses 9 and 10, but that part of the conversation is not recorded for us. What the writer of Jonah is doing here is he's giving us a condensed version, a condensed version of the conversation in order to heighten the urgency of the moment. But regardless, now the cat is fully out of the bag, isn't it? Jonah had known all along what he was doing as he fled from Yahweh, and Yahweh had also, of course, known all about it as well. And we, the readers 
of the story. We had also known what was going on. We've been filled in right from the beginning of the story. Now, finally, the mariners are filled in. Now they know why Jonah is on their boat, and they also know why the sea is threatening to end their lives. These mariners are getting a first-hand lesson on the reality of Israel's God, Yahweh, as Yahweh's wind and Yahweh's waves continue to pummel their little ship. Well, now it's time for action. Verse 11, the mariners say to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Jonah, we recognize now that you and Yahweh and the raging sea are all sort of triangulated together, all connected. Tell us how Yahweh, your God, needs to be approached and appeased here. Obviously, the, the equation, Jonah, it's going to involve you. Tell us what to do now so that our ship doesn't splinter apart and we all drown. And then notice at the end of verse 11, don't miss this, the sea had already been a mighty tempest, according to verse 4. Now the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So if the wind had been blowing at 47 knots before, in verse 4, now, here in verse 11, it increases to, to 50 knots. And all eyes remain on Jonah. Jonah must tell the crew what to do with him. Jonah says to the crew, verse 12, I wonder how he said this. <laughs> we don't have it in the text. Pick me up and what? Hurl me. Remember, God had hurled a great wind on the sea. The mariners had hurled their cargo into the sea. Now Jonah says, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Now let's pause here for a moment, and, and here's a question that's worth asking here. How in the world would Jonah know that his being hurled into the sea would be the thing that would quiet down the sea. How would he know that? I think, with Colin Smith here, that because Jonah has just come out and has confessed to the sailors that he was on their ship running from his God, that that confession meant that now God was speaking to Jonah again. It could be, although granted it's not recorded in the text here, it could be that God told Jonah what must now be done. Otherwise, how would Jonah come to this conclusion, conclusion on his own that throwing him into the sea would make the sea grow calm? I would venture to guess that here, 
Jonah received a word from the Lord, although again, admittedly, that's only a guess. Hurl me, says Jonah, into this raging, boiling sea. Take my life and throw it into certain death. It's because of me that God has sent this angry storm. It's because of me that all of you are in this great trouble. Do with me what you did with the cargo. Toss me into the waves. All of you are about to die because of what I have done. Let's reverse that. Let me die so that you might live and have calm and have peace. Now listen, I imagine here, I imagine Jonah standing near the edge of this boat on the upper deck there as the wind is blowing and the waves are pounding and the ship is rolling on the swells. Jonah looks into the raging sea and he knows what must happen. Just moments ago, Jonah had been asleep blissfully sawing logs below deck, but now Jonah is staring wide-eyed into the angry sea, and Jonah knows that he is to blame for this mess. God's judgment on Jonah has come. Jonah has sinned, and now Jonah is facing this terrible moment. Nineveh had been running from God, full of sin, and blissfully asleep to their spiritual condition. And God's judgment was imminent on Nineveh if they did not turn their ship in the opposite direction and repent. Sleeping Nineveh had no idea that soon they would be standing there looking into the angry sea of God's judgment if they didn't wake up and turn around. And so God had sent Jonah there to warn them. God had sent Jonah to Nineveh to, to help Nineveh to turn before it was too late. God did not want Nineveh to come to that precipice facing God's anger about to die. Jonah stands on the deck of the boat on the pre precipice facing God's anger about to die. Did, did Jonah now have a realization as he stands there on the boat, an epiphany of sorts concerning what it would feel like to be a Ninevite when it was too late. God is at work in Jonah's life as Jonah is facing death by raging waters. God is still at work. God is working his sovereign wonders here in the story, isn't he? Also see this, Jonah had refused to go to a pagan nation. He'd refused to go to a pagan nation to carry God's word of peace. And guess what? 
Now, here, Jonah finds himself a kind of sacrificial offering that will do what? That will bring peace to a group of pagan mariners once he's thrown overboard. Disobedient Jonah has not escaped God. He has not escaped God. God is doing what God wants here. God does as he pleases. And it pleases God in this moment to bring rescue to this little group of sailors. And he's also going to rescue Jonah, as we know. But for their part, the sailors refuse, don't they? They refuse to throw Jonah overboard, at least initially. They refuse. Verse 13 says, that nevertheless, that is, despite Jonah's idea that he's just verbalized to have himself thrown overboard, despite that, the men did what? They rowed hard. And the word here in Hebrew is an interesting one. It has to do with digging in. They dug in with their oars. They exerted themselves. They spent significant energy trying to save Jonah's life by rowing with all their might toward the shore. Now, isn't this amazing? They all knew, all of them knew now, that Jonah was to blame for their dire predicament. They all knew that if it weren't for Jonah's behavior, they would still have their cargo on board, and yet, what do they do? These mariners want to make an effort here to save Jonah's life. These pagan sailors, they want to exercise mercy on this guilty Israelite who, for his part, had not wanted to exercise mercy on the pagans in Nineveh. Isn't this amazing? But what happens? Well, the text says that for all of their valiant and tremendous efforts at rowing, they could not. Why? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Again, do notice that the sea is increasingly getting worse. We can only imagine. Verse 4, the sea had been a mighty tempest, 47 knot winds. Verse 11, the sea had grown more and more tempestuous, 50 knot winds. And now here in verse 13, the sea, the sea is even more tempestuous, maybe 55 or 60 knot winds, a very alarming situation. What happens then? Verse 14 Therefore, they did what? The mariners did what? They called out <laughs> to Yahweh. They called out to the Lord. They, the sailors, called out to Yahweh. Jonah did not. Jonah has refused to call out against Nineveh, and Jonah has refused the captain's command to call out to his God. Now these non-Israelite sailors, they're not going to wait for Jonah any longer. They call out to Jonah's God. Notice, friends, there is some faith being exercised here in these sailors. They are calling out to Yahweh while Yahweh's prophet remains mute. And what do they say to Yahweh? They say this, 
O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. These sailors are now prepared to do as Jonah had recommended. They are prepared for the sake of their own survival to throw Jonah overboard. But they recognize that there's been no due process here. There's been no fair trial of Jonah in a court of law to properly sentence him to death. No time for any of that. No ability. And so they pray to Jonah's God, Yahweh. They ask Yahweh for clemency. They ask him for mercy to be upon them. In essence, they ask Yahweh to not hold them guilty for this execution that they are about to perform. Don't let Jonah's blood be on our heads as we throw him to his death, O Yahweh. Now, friends, pause here and notice how Jonah's refusal to go on mission for God has resulted in God reaching these unbelieving sailors. One more time, Jonah's refusal to go on mission for God has resulted in God reaching these unbelieving sailors so that now, here they are, praying in earnest to him. As Daniel Timmer puts it, I like this, quote, Jonah's anti-missionary activity has ironically resulted in the conversion of non-Israelites. One more time, Jonah's anti-missionary activity has ironically resulted in the conversion of non-Israelites. Yes. Why? Because God is great. God is right here in this storm, carrying out his mission. God is doing, Ephesians 1.11, working all things according to the counsel of his will, and he's doing that right now in our world today and in your life. Verse 15, so they did it. They picked up Jonah and, here's our word again, hurled him into the sea. And just as Jonah the prophet had prophesied would happen, the sea ceased from its raging. There came a notable calm after Jonah disappears beneath the waves. And the result of this sudden calm that comes after Jonah has sunk down under the water, the result is an even greater notice, an even greater fear on the part of the mariners. Verse 16, then the men feared Yahweh, the Lord, exceedingly and in very sincere worship to this God who has just demonstrated his fearsome power to spare them, 
the mariners did what? They offered a sacrifice to Yahweh, whatever they had, and they made vows. And so we have this little impromptu worship service that happens here aboard this boat. And all the worship of these men is focused where? It's focused intently on Yahweh. It is done in the fear of Yahweh who made the sea. Probably a very fervent, urgent, fearful, reverent kind of worship here. Now, bear in mind, friends, again, these first-time worshipers of Yahweh are still heading where? They're still headed to the west coast of Spain, to Tarshish. Jonah's no longer with them, but they remain on course for another nation's coast. And now they're going there with their newfound faith in Yahweh, and they're going to bring that faith in Yahweh with them to Spain. And who has orchestrated all of this? God has. God has overruled Jonah. God is getting his work done despite Jonah. Word of God's greatness is now going to the west of Spain through the witness and the testimony of these mariners. Our God is great, friends. He does what he pleases. Now, have you ever walked into a darkened room where your loved one is sleeping and you're trying to find your keys in the dark? You don't want to turn the light on because you don't want to wake your loved one up, but of course that is complicating uh, your search for your keys. In the darkened room, as you look about, you can only make out sort of fuzzy shapes and rough contours, you feel around and you fumble around for your keys. You, you're using your sense of touch more than your sense of sight. Well, the section of Jonah that we walked through today is sort of like that situation in the darkened room. And Christ is the fully lit, full color, brightly illuminated room. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have the fully lit revelation of what all those darkened, shadowy shapes and contours of the Old Testament suggested. Let me explain. Let's go back briefly to verse 13 of our text where the mariners were doing what? Digging in, rowing hard, exerting themselves in an effort to do what? To save both Jonah and themselves. They had heard what Jonah had said about hurling him into the sea, but they thought that they would, they'd, they'd at least try to avoid Jonah's death by rowing everybody to shore instead. They would save all souls on board their boat by their own effort, they thought. The sacrifice that Jonah had suggested could be avoided. But it turned out, didn't it, that God's storm, God's storm was greater than they could manage. They could not row their way out of it. And so now the recognition dawned on, on them that if they would be saved, 
Jonah would indeed have to be sacrificed, thrown overboard. Well, friends, of course, we, all of us, are the mariners. Each and every one of us is a mariner. By our own rowing, by our own efforts, it is impossible for us, you need to understand this morning, it is impossible for you and impossible for me to save ourselves. We need someone to be thrown into the storm, a sacrificial offering is necessary for us if we would be rescued. As Colin Smith has put it so perfectly, I love this, quote, the storm of God's judgment is stronger than you are. You do not have the ability to survive this storm by your own effort, no matter how hard you try. The storm of God's judgment will wreck you unless you are saved by the sacrifice of someone else, close quote. Jonah is hurled into the raging sea so that, in his own words, the sea would quiet down for the sailors. Jonah's apparent death by raging sea is going to do what? It's going to bring benefit to the sailors. The death of one person for the good of a group of people. Well, this is all a dim shadow, a darkened room where we can only see the rough contours of the cross. As we wrap this up, let's compare that sacrifice of Jonah with the sacrifice of Jesus. And let's do that by highlighting the glaring differences between Jonah sacrificially thrown into the sea and Jesus sacrificially nailed to the cross. Jonah, by his own rebellion against God, his own rebellion against God, had brought on the raging sea. Jonah, by his disobedience to the divine call, had brought great trouble on a whole crew on that boat. Jonah was hurled into the sea. Why? Because of his own sin. And Jonah's sacrifice, if we can call it that, had the effect of doing what? Of bringing only a temporary calm in the weather for a small group of people aboard on a, a small craft, a small boat. Jonah is certainly no Jesus. Jonah is like the darkened room where you are trying to find your keys. Jonah is only a very dim shadow, a very imperfect shadow of the blazing light, fully illuminated, that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because unlike Jonah, as Jesus plunged into the storm of the cross, he had no sin of his own. Jesus went into the storm 
that we brought about <laughs> by our sin. He went there as our sinless, sinless substitute to take on himself our condemnation to save us from the peril that we brought on ourselves by our sin. Jesus was plunged into that storm as a ransom for many. He went to the cross as the substitutionary sacrifice for a sinful international crew aboard a ship called Planet Earth. And unlike, Jesus, unlike Jonah, sorry, unlike Jonah, Jesus obeyed the will of his Father to the letter in all things, even to death. We know if we've read Jonah that Jonah didn't end up dying after he plunged into the water. But Jesus did die on the cross. Jesus went so much further than Jonah ever could have. The sacrifice of Jesus is billions of times, billions of times more glorious and more effective than Jonah's. And so, my friend, we'll end with this. If you are rowing hard in your life, rowing hard to save yourself, to get right with God, you can stop it now. Put down your oars, your weary arms, and trust Jesus Christ. Receive the sacrifice that God has orchestrated on your behalf that forgives your sin and declares you righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Maybe today he led you to this sermon on YouTube as a step in overruling your stubbornness, overruling your self-sufficiency. Maybe now he's turning the lights on full blast to show you Christ and to show you your need, your need of Jesus Christ. I counsel you to drop your oars and surrender to Jesus at last. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the word that you have inspired and revealed to us. We thank you for its potency, its power. We thank you that today, Lord, you have spoken to each and every one of us through uh, this section of Jonah. And I pray, Lord, that we not just simply turn the channel off uh, later today and forget this time of worship, but Lord, that you would continue to remind us of the things that we have uh, worshipped you through uh, this morning. Uh, take them into our week and be changed people as a result. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.